Warning, the following podcast contains descriptions of violence against human beings and may contain descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is not suitable for children under the age of 13. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, Paranormies, to another episode of Paranormal Guys. I'm Zane. And I'm Kyle. And we're back. (laughs) We also want to do a big shout out to our friends in Australia. Thank you for making up 5% of our listeners, which is how many people, Kyle? Um, About two. Woo! Ow, that hurt my head. I forgot I had a migraine. All right, we're going to do this thing now. It's going to happen. Kyle, I have a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Have you ever seen the film Beauty and the Beast? I sure have. Can I say that without getting sued by Disney, either of them? Well, Beauty and the Beast Beast isn't owned by Disney because the story was written by someone in France. So, yes, you're fine. Stories from the public domain are wonderful. All right, so give me the most, like, uh, bare bones, spark notes, funded by the government description of the film that you can. Oh, okay. Like literally just like as, as <laughs> simple think for a second. and in as few sentences as humanly possible. Okay. Um, a girl gets trapped in a castle and falls in love with her captor. Okay. So exactly. A woman goes into old castle to save her father is forcibly made to stay there against her will by sentient monster and ends up falling deeply in love with him. Sans but then he turns the out to be a prince. Well, but he was a monster to begin with. And I mean, in reality, if we just kill off the musical numbers, the fact that it's in a French castle, the talking cutlery and the bestiality, this is actually the story we're talking about today. So, okay. I want to introduce you to San Francisco. The year is 1973. I love that we go from bestiality to San Francisco. (laughs) Well, I mean, really, is there a difference? I mean, am I confused here? (laughs) Sorry, San Francisco. Anything goes there, okay? I believe it means a whale's... All right, anyway. um, (laughs) So, Kyle, when you think of the 70s, like, what, what is the immediate thought? What do you think of? Well... I was trying to think of things that happened in the 70s last night and everything that I thought of happened in the 90s or the 80s. So I don't know. We had like a long phone call about this. But I mean, like, (laughs) but like generally, like when someone says the 70s, like for me, I'm like hippies, free love, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. I think big hair. Suppression. Women. Female suppression. Huh? Disco stew. Disco stew. Bell bottoms. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially the counterculture movement. So there's actually a song by Scott McKenzie. Um, everybody's heard it, just nobody knows what it is. If you've seen Forrest Gump, that's the song that plays at the end. It's the, are you going to San Francisco? The reason for that is that apparently San Francisco was like this like hub of kind of the counterculture movement. It was like the epicenter of everything. Okay. And it's where it all started out. So just slightly north of San Francisco there's a university and that university is UC Berkeley. And during this time in the seventies, during kind of all these reformations, that was where you went if you wanted to be a part of this kind of hippie counterculture movement. And I just, I kind of want to like bring us a little bit better description of the word hippie. When we think of them, it's the peace signs and the hippie vans, which is part of it. But realistically, like let's just kind of narrow it a bit. Um, I wrote down a, a definition. So for the most part, Hippies preached uh, the peace doctrine because we were a war-weary country with a free press. Um, 
side note, we had a really, really corrupt government and they were just advocating for change by trying to be that change. And unfortunately, that's not how capitalism works. And our government's head is still located somewhere firmly up its own. But the idea was there so they could, you know, they thought we can be peaceful. We'll teach our children to be peaceful and it will kind of go on. And, you know, it was a noble idea if completely blindly optimistic. So. That's kind of where this whole thing starts. Now, if history's taught me anything, it's that humanity sucks, uh, because that's basically the long story short of this podcast. Humans are bad. They do bad things. Um, I think that's the underlying. We can put that on T-shirts. It reminds me of, have you seen the episode of Community? Where they're trying to prove that. Community. Oh, okay. It's on Netflix. So I recommend everyone watch it. Um, there's an episode where they're trying to prove that humanity is bad, and it's hilarious. Anyways, everyone no, needs to go I, watch I it. I completely <laughs> believe that's true, but more to the point, I this is why I say that in this case, um, humanity is kind of awful. So the whole point of these hippies gathering in one place and having kind of this social mind is that they're going to try to make a better future. However, there's always someone who's willing to take that to an extreme, and they're generally the ones who end up on the news. And in this case, it was no different. So in 1973, there was a man named uh, Donald DeFreeze, and he was an inmate. He was very politically active. He often gave speeches about the suppression of uh, the lower class, about how there was race suppression occurring, and how basically instead of dealing with poverty, we just tossed everyone in jail. Now, there's some truth to it, but once again, anything taken to an extreme is a bad thing. So Donald DeFreeze starts to befriend certain people as they come into the prison. Remember, Berkeley's just down the road. So oftentimes students are coming in from UC Berkeley and they're actually um, teaching the inmates. And so they're kind of gaining a relationship with these inmates. And Donald DeFreeze made himself very available for that. And in 1973, he said, I'm done. And he found a way to escape. He figured out that if you were on boiler duty, there was little to no security. You were outside the prison walls and you could pretty much just walk away. Thanks, the 1970s. <laughs> so basically, he just walked out of prison. And when he was outside the walls, now this isn't perfectly corroborated, but he had befriended, for lack of a better term, somebody named Willie Wolf who was a student at Berkeley that would come frequently to visit the prison. And it's assumed that Willie Wolf is the one who picked him up, that he knew when the prison escape was going to happen and that he kind of aided and abetted him in that. But it's not 100% proven. What is proven, though, is that later on, Willie Wolf and Donald DeFreeze would end up together. So Willie Wolf actually showed up at Berkeley intending to become an archaeologist. But instead, he kind of radicalized and spent way too much of his time in the prison. Um, and that's how he came to know Donald once again. So after his escape, they formed a group and they called it the Symbionese Liberation Army. And they released a manifesto of their intent. Now, this is kind of the main point that I wanted to bring up and that I wanted to discuss. So the Symbionese Liberation Army goes on to do a lot of rather awful things. But even though they released a manifesto, there's really not like a like a central goal or any real intent that I can find that's like unified were they, their whole system. Were they trying to start like a religion or did they want to just be like a group like the Masons or like or did they want to be kind of secretive like the mafia? 
The best way I can describe them is that they thought of themselves as a cultural revolutionary group. So essentially, they saw the problems inherent in the system, and they decided that they were going to solve them. And once again, it's it's really not super clear. Even even their manifesto isn't clear. And everything they do from here on out, I want you to be thinking in the back of your head, you and our listeners, why are they doing this? And like, who are they serving? What is their purpose? Because a lot of this seems like I should have already known it, and I had no idea. So they go on to list in their manifesto that at the core of this whole thing is the idea that they can incite small but very intense at- very intense attacks and it will fuel a larger armed revolution so unlike most hippies they were advocating for an armed revolution um like an overthrow of the US government which essentially makes them a terrorist group right. the issue here once again is the lack of clarity who's the enemy who's good who's bad and they would later go on to say that the SLA, that's the Symbionese Liberation Army, was the army of the people and call each other comrade, but they never identified as communists. And within the year, they would actually commit their first murder. So <laughs> in the fall of 1973, DeFries is sitting in a living room with, uh, you know, probably just kind of having to chill. He's a fugitive. He's wanted by the law. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there just stewing <clears throat> on all of these ideas he's had with this group of people that are like minded. And. That was when he saw on the news that one Marcus Foster, who was the Oakland superintendent of schools, was starting to request police presence in the schools and the establishment of student IDs. And this, for some reason, really just kind of sent him like he thought that was the worst idea ever. His concept, the best I can figure out, is that he was worried that this was the beginning of a police state. Like if we keep the kids under police watch, they can never think for themselves. And so he took the next logical step, which is, of course, to, you know, go murder that guy in cold blood after a meeting with the assistance of his uh, Symbionese Liberation Army. Great. Yeah. You know, next step. Don't like something someone does. Go shoot him. That's the right <laughs> way to do it, I think, especially if you're advocating for world peace tolerance and, you know, equal rights. That right, seems like because shooting somebody solution. is it brings world peace for sure. Yeah. Killing people and telling that because they have a different belief system than you is definitely what mm-hmm. they're advocating against. And right. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, hypocritical for sure. Now, here's kind of where it it varies from the general murderer theme, right? Most of the time you'd see this, the police would spend the next you know year or so trying to figure out who did it. And then it would all kind of fall into place at once. Not so with these guys. They actually released a press release taking credit for it. And they would continue to do this acting as like a nation state, an independent government, an army within the U.S., for the rest of their time, like basically saying like, like it was always very well written and it was like letterheaded. You can find the documents and it says things like um, the people or the people's army of the Symbionese uh, Liberation Army have done this, this and this. And it's never poorly written. And it they act essentially as their own government inside the U.S., which in and of itself is not that scary. But to the people in law enforcement is terrifying because it means that essentially they have figured out their own chain of command. Right. So they murdered Marcus Foster, um, took credit for it, and they had like a calling card. So essentially when they shot him, uh, when the police pulled the bullets out, the bullets had been dipped in cyanide. So regardless of how quickly, it would have to be a very quick rescue essentially for him to survive. He was also shot multiple times at point blank range. And the operation was carried out with really, really solid effectiveness. They planned everything there weren't a whole ton of hiccups, and we'll see that a few times in kind of their their history as time goes on. Now, I know I told you at the beginning of this we were going to be talking about Beauty and the Beast, and that's kind of – that's sort of where we're about to get. So in late 1973, 
or early 1974, the SLA starts printing propaganda at like local print shops. Now, we live in America. You're allowed to print propaganda. But if that propaganda ties you to a murder, you still go to jail. So essentially, they start printing off this propaganda. They start printing off posters and things like that. But they're also starting to acquire illegal firearms. And on January 10th, Two members of the cell were arrested by police after a routine traffic stop ended in a shootout, and one of the men was found to have been using the murder weapon from the Marcus Foster trial to try to kill the cop, which is brilliant, by the way. Definitely keep the gun around and then use it to try to kill a cop. I think that's the best possible solution if someone asks, what's the most asinine way we can do this? Great work, guys. <laughs> Solid work. So... um, in the van they were driving, they found propaganda, more illegal firearms, basically everything they needed to tie these guys to the Marcus Foster murders. Now, keep in mind, Donald DeFreeze was the guy that pulled the trigger. He was the trigger man in the Marcus Foster murders. These two guys took the rep for him. They went to jail um, instead of turning in Donald DeFreeze. And that's actually kind of a major point here because essentially in Donald DeFreeze's mind and in their mind, what they were doing was like righteous war. They they didn't they hadn't done anything wrong. They were in prison for wrongful means. What they were doing was try to start a revolution, sure, but it didn't strike them as illegal because they were attacking what they felt were solid targets. But once again, how does killing a school superintendent create this whatever they're looking for? Are you seeing a connection? Because I'm definitely not. No, I was going to say, why would they go after the superintendent? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, and I mean, once again, my best guess is because Donald DeFreeze was worried that it would create like a thought police kind of thing. But I had a cop at my school. I'm fairly outspoken. I don't I don't know what they were thinking. But anyway, so they've now been they've got two of the cell members arrested. Donald DeFreeze and everybody else is like, crap, this is all going to chain back to us because we own some of the guns legally, some of them illegally. So DeFreeze and associates start dousing the safe house in gasoline and just toast the place. Oh just set gosh. fire to it and take off. Because once again, what is the most asinine thing we could possibly do? Burn the safe house to the ground. Let's do it. Problem was Can gas we- needs an accelerant or gas is an accelerant, mm-hmm. but it needs oxygen to cook off. And someone shut the garage door. And so about half of the evidence burned. So the cops show up. And they're like, hmm, look at all of this Symbionese Liberation Army stuff. I wonder who was here before. Could it be the Symbionese Liberation Army? No. Yeah, no, they totally knew it was them. So they're starting (laughs) to sift through all this stuff, and they're finding a lot of propaganda. But then they found this little black journal. And on one of the pages, because once again, these guys were thinking ahead, there was literally written, potential kidnap victims. Stop it. Did it really? That they're li- like making a list. <laughs> I, I, I literally picture, and I have to be careful here because some of them are out of prison and alive now. Um, but um, like, I, I just feel like if you're if you're gonna do that and you're worried about Uncle Sam, you don't write down my devious scheme <laughs> and then follow it up. This but is anyway. seriously like the best way to write a dramatic, like tri- a true crime drama. Yeah, for real. Like this whole story, by the way, does sound like something off of like a, like a TBS special. But anyway, yeah, for um, sure. This is a true crime sitcom, not a drama. <laughs> oh, just wait. Um, oh no. So essentially, they they open up the journal, they find this page, and on that page is somebody named Patty Hurst. So, once again, why would they want to kidnap anybody, and what point would it be proving, right? Like, where mm-hmm. where does uh, – how does any of this help them? I'm still totally at a loss. So I, I just want to – I'm going to set the scene for you here, all right? It's February 10th, 
1974, so it's next year. All's quiet in the small small two-story town home where Steve hears a knock at the door. His fiance stays on the couch as he opens the door to find a woman on the porch. She's backed into someone's car in the parking lot and asks to use the phone, when without warning, two gunmen barrel into the house and slam Steve to the floor where he begins to be beaten with a wine bottle. He hears the woman say, they've seen our faces, we have to kill them. Writhing free, he flees from the house, yelling at the top of his lungs for help. Making it to the safety of a neighbor's home, he looks around, seeking out his wife. Nearby, he hears gunfire, one gun, then another, as two cars barrel away, tires screeching. In the trunk of one of the vehicles is Stephen's fiance, Patty Hearst. Um, so like that, there and gone. Matter of fact, in the interview afterward, uh, when he finally gets released from the hospital after his injuries have been assessed, he says they moved with military efficiency and didn't need to communicate to make the operation happen. Well, they wrote it all down in their black books, so... Yeah, for real. They had it all perfectly planned. (laughs) You know that step four was by Twinkies. Like, it just had... There had to be something in there where it was like they were so regimented that they did that. But anyway, so they've now kidnapped Patty Hearst. Now, I I told you before I'm not sure how she fits into the equation, but let me explain a little bit about Patty Hearst. So apparently the Hearsts were a big deal back in the 70s. They controlled a lot of newspapers. Dozens and dozens of dozens of newspapers were owned by the Hearst family, which, by the way, I think is totally wrong. I don't think you should be able to own more than one newspaper. That's how we get stations like Fox News. But anyway, um, (laughs) Uh, it's called a monopoly. It's called state media. But anyway, um, it's like Disney owning everything. It's kind of along those same that. lines. They'll, they'll they'll find us and they'll <laughs> kill us all. <clears throat> no, the Hursts are um, interesting because um, I don't know if it was her father, or her grandfather built Hearst Castle in California. That's the one. And it was her grandfather. It was a grandfather. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is the most interesting building I think I've ever been in. We went on a tour. Is it more of it. interesting than uh, Winchester? Plug plug plug. Yes. I think it is because they the way it was built is they would go and actually take down monuments brick by brick and label them. And then they would rebuild it brick by brick in Hearst Castle. Um, There's maybe the most pretentious thing I think I've ever heard in my life. Something Mr. Burns would have. Yes. One hundred percent. The whole time I was walking through, it was definitely a Mr. Burns building. But they have not released downs. He has an outdoor or they have an outdoor pool. That is Olympic sized and there is sculptures of the Greek gods everywhere, like huge marble sculptures of them. And I was like, I definitely want to swim here. And then (laughs) there was an indoor pool, also Olympic sized. And each tile in the pool was about an inch big. And every single one of them was hand fused glass. I think it has I think it was fused with gold, but it was beautiful. And then they so, just donated it to they donated it to the state of California because they didn't want to pay the state tax on it anymore. <laughs> so I promise we didn't plan this, listeners. But Kyle, you just set me up for the home run of the century. So oh, good. <clears throat> basically, Patricia Hearst was an heiress to that massive empire, to the empire where you could afford to have statues moved brick by brick for millions and millions mm-hmm. of dollars. That's, yeah, and, that is it. Well, and the castle also has their own. Uh, zoo like as you're driving up the mountainside to go to the castle there's zebras and lions and like there's just things roaming around <laughs> it's just you know like as you do their own sahara what the it anyway, is seriously the like, most bizarre place but it's so interesting in fact 
I don't want to really promote Lady Gaga that much, but she has a music video. Pass, hard pass, passing, passing G-U-I, on this statement. And the entire music video was filmed at Hearst Castle. So yeah, if you want to see it and don't want to go to California to see it, you can just watch in that video, I guess. Valid point. So check out Lady Gaga for our next video. But, <laughs> it's a um, terrible song. I hate that one, but... Uh, it is what it is. But essentially, you know, like like Kyle said, you have a freaking castle, like a literal castle yes, with like these Roman sculptures, a zoo, uh, a full-size pool. And this is in the 70s, mind you, so this was a little... This would have been even more expensive then. So essentially, she comes from incredible wealth, but Patricia was actually not like a quintessential brat like you might picture based upon that image. Um... She's been referred to as tomboyish. Her father actually took her and her alone fishing and taught her how to shoot. Um, And she actually abhorred the convent schools that she was forced to attend. She got kicked out of a few of them. Um, So she's not like, you know, this. she's definitely privileged, but she's not. I don't picture her as the privileged quintessential white girl, um, especially because her spouse, the, the guy she was espoused to rather, her fiance was a school teacher. Um hmm. Like they 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 were not super wealthy. They sure I'm sure they you know benefited off of her parents' wealth, but she in and of herself was not super wealthy. However, she became a target to the SLA because of her parents. Um, and this is where the SLA uses a rather terrifying overgeneralization. I this is from the horse's mouth from a ex member of the SLA that I watched an interview with. He referred to the target list as enemies of the people. The reason that I find that chilling is this. That phrase has been used by communist Russians, communist Chinese, and many other, you know, whatever ists you are in mass purges. It's like an excuse to go off and murder a bunch of people because what they do is they say these are enemies of the people. They're enemies of the state. During Mao Zedong's crackdown um, in China during the communist revolution, they murdered doctors, they murdered teachers, and they did it all because they were enemies of the state. Or enemies of the people. When you say anything is enemies of the people, you rally an entire country, an entire nation, an entire group against somebody because you gave them an arbitrary title. This is super concerning to me because our president, Donald Trump, has labeled the news media enemies of the people. And while I am not the biggest fan of the average news media outlet, he can't just say that because his tiny pecker gets hurt. I'm just saying. It's utterly terrifying. But either way. So she's a target because of this. And so now she's been kidnapped and she's in the back of a, of a vehicle traveling down the freeway somewhere. And a couple days go by. And the only reason that anybody knows that she's been kidnapped is because Stephen, her uh, ex-fiance now, survived the attack and told them. But it took several days until <coughs> they received what's called the communique. And the communique was received from the kidnappers identifying themselves as the SLA. Do you remember before when they killed Marcus Foster, they made a press release? This was a press release. So it was a formally written letter stating that they had served an arrest warrant on Patricia Hearst. Um, So this tells you something. This says that they're acting within some level of governance, or at least they're trying to pretend to. Right. And they demanded that the first demand, this is their initial demand, Patricia's father had to read in full the, the letter on the news and have it published in all of his newspapers. So real which, quick, once again, was huge. So let me just for me to grasp everything. When you said they issued a search warrant, these guys, not the, the government, the SLA yeah. is the one saying we issued a search an warrant. warrant, an arrest warrant, because they have the authority to do that. 
Yeah, they're saying we have issued an arrest warrant on Patricia Hearst. That's okay. the SLA. And that's why that is their reasoning. So and so reasoning why yeah, they went in and took her. Well, no, their reasoning has yet to be described, but essentially they're they're trying to legitimize what they did that's, by putting yeah, it inside, a, inside of a them trying to say, legal, oh, we had a yeah. warrant, we created a warrant, so you can't charge us with kidnapping kind of thing. They they also were trying to make a bit of a satirical point. They were trying to say, how can a judge who doesn't know anything about a person or a person's circumstances sign a warrant for their arrest without knowing anything they've done and only taking it on the word of the police? They did that a lot. The problem is when you just kidnap somebody at gunpoint, then shot up their apartment complex, it goes over a little bit less well than it might if, you know, you didn't do that. So um, they demanded that he read it out loud, which he did. And they used the phrase for the safety of the prisoner um, as the as like the catch line instead of saying or we will shoot the hostage, Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting because they've defined her as a prisoner at this point. Um, instead of a kidnap victim or the hostage or whatever it is. They're, they're very careful in their phraseology, at least in the beginning. And the letter concludes the same way every single time when it's written by Donald DeFries. And that is, um, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the lives of the people, which is a very, very communist statement. But once again, they never identified as communists, even though that's essentially what he's saying. My opinion of Donald DeFries is that as an African-American living in the 70s, he saw the major disparity between white and black class, and he saw the major disparity in the pay, gra- or the pay gap, and he unintentionally or intentionally basically made the SLA a tool for him to show off that disparity and a way for him to get revenge. But he did it in such a way that it showed equal rights for white, black, man, woman, which was actually pretty talented, in my opinion. But I, mm-hmm. I also think that it was a bigger thing for him. So... Meanwhile, Patricia has been in a closet for several days, literally in a closet with a with a blindfold on. Uh, according to her own testimony, she later gave on tape. They would send out tapes occasionally. You can find them online. They're actually rather chilling. Um, she was neither beaten nor starved and was being held under the international standards of a prisoner of war. Um, and she says that on tape. And so do two of the captors I watched interview her. They talk about how... Um, They actually tried to treat her with dignity and with respect, even though she was a prisoner and obviously she's being kept in a small closet. She was supposedly kept comfortable and fed, which is a big deal because that's not normal for the average hostage taker. The average hostage taker slaps you around, sends your family your ear, you know, requests money, does crazy stuff. But she's being held and actually defined at this point as a prisoner prisoner of war. They declared her a prisoner of war and. They seem to be treating her relatively humanely. The other evidence that they didn't plan on doing anything crazy is that they wore ski masks the entire time when they were in their own safe house. Kyle, can you tell us why that's a big deal? Well, they didn't. If they were wearing ski masks, it's because they didn't want her to see their face. Exactly. And if they didn't want her to be if they didn't want to be seen, it was because they had intent to either let her go Mm -hmm. or they had a concern that at some point she would give testimony. So that's a sign that there was not really ill will there necessarily. Matter of fact, one of the guys I watched interviewed said, we didn't plan on having her around very long, not because we were going to kill her, but because we didn't think that it would last very long. There's a reason we wore our ski masks the entire time. If she was blindfolded, we had them off. If she wasn't, we had them on. And so I actually personally do believe that. I think they were planning on releasing her. I think Donald DeFries had enough foresight, at least at this point, to realize that it wouldn't make sense for him to kill the hostage. Uh, wait, sorry, um, what, what time of year did the, all this happen? This is uh, so this all of this is happening between January 10th and we're about to have another date come up um, right here. 
So, well, I just wanted to point that out because no one in their right mind would want to wear a ski mask around their house in the middle of the summer, if that were the case. But they're also in California where it's warm all the time and muggy and muggy. Yeah. And humid. So, yes, I agree with you. They probably did have the intent devoted to their cause, too. Yeah. And I think you're but I'm I'm just saying I think this is I think you're right. They had the intent to release her. Otherwise, they would not have chosen to do that. It's super uncomfortable. Yeah, no, and, and I agree. I, I do think that Donald DeFreeze was flawed in his thinking, but I think that at least in this case, they were trying to make a statement by treating a prisoner humanely. One of the um, people I watched interviewed that was one of her kidnappers, actually the guy who hauled her into the trunk, was an ex-Vietnam, he was, he was a veteran from Vietnam, and he talks about how on the first day he was in Vietnam, he had to torture a prisoner, and how that kind of shaped him as a person to make him realize that a war was morally wrong, B, torture was morally wrong, and C, people have certain human rights. So up to this point, with the notable exception of their random murder of, of uh, oh my gosh, Marcus Foster, they're actually being pretty rational. And that's about to go out the window, so just brace yourself. So the SLA has sent out that first demand that her dad read in its full their letter. And that's when they sent out or not. That's when. Sorry. And on I, I think it was the 13th. So three days after the kidnapping, they sent their real ransom demand. And this is going to sound great until you really think about it. And once again, I want you to ask the question, who are they trying to serve slash what are they trying to serve? You ready? OK, <laughs> so it's the, I think it was the 13th of the 14th. The SLA releases a statement demanding uh, that for the same. That is not English. Demanding essentially that as a show of good faith, so potentially for the release of Patty, they want $70 given to all those in need of food in California, the entire state. $70 of food, which doesn't sound bad until you do the math and realize that that's $366 a head. So I I did the math. (laughs) Um, In 1974, that totals out at roughly $400 million. Jeez. In 2020, that totals out at $2,094,239,350. I mean, it's just a small amount of money. $94,239,350. That's the kind of money that only Donald Trump can pretend to have. That's the kind of money that's bailing out the country right now. Yeah. So. Basically, they asked for a $400 million bribe, or not bribe, but ransom. Now, granted, it's going to the people, which is once again a communist ideal, but the problem is it's unrealistic, right? I mean, you can't it, you can't do it. You can't give that kind of money out. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, and that's exactly what Randy Hearst, Patricia's father, was thinking. So, I don't believe for a minute that um, Donald DeFreeze, given his limited education just due to circumstance, actually knew that he was asking for $400 million. But when Randy counteroffered with a $2, with a $2 million offer, he accepted it. So he puts $2 million into a couple of charitable organizations, some of them government-run, some of them not, and it is a total cluster truck. Just like absolute train wreck. Doesn't work. It essentially causes riots in four cities with people trying to get their food. It, it just is bad just not well orchestrated not well designed and the sla is pissed even though two million dollars went into paying for all the food mm-hmm. the logistics were so poorly handled that you had people literally climbing on the trucks you had people having eggs thrown at them like 
It just, it was bad. It was not a well-orchestrated setup. And the problem with that is that the S, the, um, what am I thinking of? The SLA has not exactly shown a penchant for critical thinking at the moment, as opposed to like looking ahead. Um, so while all of this is going on, just to kind of give you a back at the ranch, by the way, uh-huh. they were given four weeks to roll this plan out. They said it's, it will start on the 19th of February and over four weeks, you guys can disseminate all of that food. So that's four weeks of time, at least, that Patty is still going to be interned. And during that time, she was put through something called re-education. Now, I watched interviews with three different people. Re-education is generally referred to in, like, the CIA context, where it's like, it means you're you're literally, like, basically being tortured. That's not at all what this situation was. They wanted to re-educate her, and it seems genuinely from the the interviews I watched that they thought of it as an act of, like, sympathy, like, humane choice they were trying to show her what they believed and why they believed it and they wanted her to memorize and understand it now the memorization part seems a little odd to me but i I get the rest of it um but they would quiz her after giving her literature and a flashlight on the tenets of their um i guess you could say belief system and so they did re-educate her she spent six or seven days straight just reading their literature by the by a flashlight and they ended up quizzing her on it, and she ended up memorizing all of it. Now, this is the interesting part. Later on, the word brainwashing is going to come up a lot. To me, that doesn't sound like brainwashing so much as when you're stuck in a room with nothing to do and they give you a book to read and say, memorize this. It's something to do. You're going to memorize it, right? Well, and you said she was in there for a week. I want you to imagine just sitting in a closet reading the same information repeatedly. All Didn't day, work every for day, the same for a company week. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was brainwashing. Okay, they brainwashed us to believe that we worked at the best company in the world. No, what I'm saying is, uh, like, just take a novel for example. Let's just take Harry Potter for example. If you were to sit in a closet and read Harry Potter all day, every day for an entire week in the dark, you'd start to believe that maybe this is actually happening around you. You know or what I mean? You'd at least memorize the words enough to to be able to repeat them. Back. Exactly. So, yeah. Basically, this whole time she's, you know, there, there's, I, I don't think it was brainwashing. I think it was just something to do and it was a stimulus and it's easier to remember when you have nothing else to do. So going back to what the SLA is doing, because keep in mind, we're in the midst of essentially a hostage negotiation while all this is happening and she's just sitting in a closet. So the SLA is like, okay, try again, but do it with $6 million this time. They're already out $2 million. $6 million in 1974 is $31 million in 2020. That's insane. So Randy says, I can't do that. We we don't have that kind of money. If we do this, we open the door to all kinds of kidnappings, things like that. But more importantly, what he said, and he said this on a live mic, was this is now out of my hands. And so they get another audio tape from Patty, and she's pissed. She essentially says, Dad, I can't believe this bullshit. You have the money to make this happen. And this is really where we start to see a deterioration in Patty's relationship with her parents and especially with the media, at least as a victim, because her initial tape, she sounds a little concerned, a little cautious, but she doesn't sound like she's being held at gunpoint. These ones, she sounds pissed off, man. She's like, you know, you have the money to do this. The SLA was kind enough to give you a way out and you didn't do it. You put me in jeopardy by doing this, not because they're going to hurt me, but because every time the FBI tries to find me. They're going to be putting themselves in jeopardy because the SLA is right and they're going to fight like 
She says everything except for I believe in the doctrines of the SLA in this tape. And shortly after, they get their final tape. Um, and it just says, Mom, Dad, you didn't try hard enough. I can't believe that you guys are a part of the system. I've been given a choice. They've offered to release me in a public place where I will be safe and let me go, or I can join them and fight with the SLA. And I'm joining the SLA. My name is now Tanya. Uh, and then she signs off. Tanya so, Harding. And now we jump into the Olympics. Just kidding. So Tanya Harding. <laughs> do, do you know what a great crossover episode that would be? Anyway, um, so she's now going by the moniker Tanya because uh, that was one of Che Guevara's sidekicks, essentially. But can you imagine you drop two million dollars on your kid to try to save them, and then they just kind of like turn around and leave. It and really like, does beg oh, the question. That wasn't enough money, uh, so I'm going to leave. Bye. Well, for me, the the way I see it is more along the lines of like, yeah, you tried two million dollars, but she literally says, "You, it is not out of your hands. You have washed your hands of this." To her dad, and really, I mean, she's 19. Who's going to know the exact financial balance of their father? But she would know to an extent how much money he had or his wealth. And I think if she's calling him out on it, it might be true. Yeah, but it's I'm trying to look at things from her father's point of view. He's exactly right, though. If he pays that, he probably does have the funds to do it. But if he pays it, how many more kidnappings? Not just him, but everyone in the high society. How many people are going to start getting kidnappings just so that people will get money? But this is the thing. Donald DeFreeze doesn't see a penny of that money. That money all went to getting people food. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying other people would look at that in a different way and be like, hmm, if they're doing this sure. for that, I could do this and get $2 million because I kidnapped their kid, you know? But the point he was making or that he says is like, I can't afford that. And that's when Patty's like, that's bull. I know you can afford that. Like, that's her big thing is like, yeah, she feels almost like he's playing games with her life. <laughs> and that he's lying to save his wealth. Uh, my kids, uh, 100%, I'm going to be like, if you guys are kidnapped, I'm not coming for you. I'm not paying the ransom. Sorry. If you guys get kidnapped, I'm sending Zane. That is the <laughs> most I can promise you. Zane will do, what's those movies? I've got a very special set of skills. <laughs> yeah, that one. What movie is the that one called? Where I was apparently Batman and Liam Neeson at the same time. Yes, but, you know, what's, anyway. his, what's those movies called, Mike? Taken. Taken. Yeah, I'll have Zane take care of that for me. Zane's gonna uh, go but take I'm it definitely on the not paying. If they have, <laughs> if they put a ransom over my kids, I'm gonna be like, sorry, bye. I don't need them. <laughs> you can have them. <laughs> they were already too expensive. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is why I'm not having so, kids. Yeah, welcome to my life. But anyway, <laughs> so from here on out, she did go by Tanya. That was that was fairly common i don't think they were like even some of the guys that, that are interviewed on the videos i watched they call her tanya they don't call her patty mm. um so at this point the sla now has another member they're already broke as is because they're a grassroots terrorist organization and so they're like we need some money and additionally we've got a point to prove so they did some research and they figured out what bank in the area had surveillance cameras because that was not common in the 70s and they found the one with the best cameras and robbed that bank in the middle of the day with Patty Hearst standing right in the middle of the, the lobby. And she knew it. It wasn't like they were pl pulling one over on her, but she's standing right in the middle of the lobby. There's an infamous picture of her holding the AR, standing there holding the place down while they robbed the bank. So this was 100% intentional. Yeah, they for planned them to it. see and her and film her there. Yeah. Well, you got to remember, Donald DeFreeze is a bit of a drama dude. He's good at kind of building up that drama, but also... 
they've made already a plenty of moves very much like this that are more ideological in nature than they are helpful, but they definitely made some cash in the process. So they go in, they rob this bank, and they get out of there, you know, scot-free, tons of cash, um, and they're able to keep funding this operation that they're performing. Now, there's a lot of minutia that I'm going to cut out here because I want to have a larger discussion about Patty Hearst, the woman, as opposed to the SLA. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple of key things that we need to get into here. So several weeks after this, keep in mind, Patty Hearst is ostensibly still a hostage. By definition, <laughs> um, several weeks later, they I mean, go to a sporting I mean she was kidnapped originally. So would she be considered a kidnappy at this point? She's yeah, now she's that a she's kidnapping victim, them. technically speaking. Like I, I think she like that's the whole weirdness about this is she was kidnapped. Now she's robbing a bank with them. She's got a gun. She could shoot her her kidnappers very easily. They trained her on how to use it at the house. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of question marks here. So several weeks later, they decided that they were gonna go buy a bunch of, of weapons and, and ammunition at a sporting goods store, but they split up so they wouldn't look as conspicuous. And they would actually do that several times throughout the entirety of their run because it looks less odd to have a group of like three to four than, you know, eight to nine, which I think was the largest that their group got. But anyway. They go to a sporting goods store, and the funny part about this is it all could have been solved if it wasn't for one person. So they go in. One of the guys who's being interviewed told this story. So they went in. They were looking around. They were buying stuff, and they were buying stuff legitimately, obviously, with stolen money, but they were buying things as they should. So they walked in, bought the stuff they needed, and started walking out. Well, he had picked up a shotgun bandolier at one point. He'd put it back down because he decided he didn't need it, but the clerk didn't see that. So on his way out, the clerk said, stop. And he turned around and because he's him, he was like, I wasn't going to stop. So he was like, why? And he's like, I need to search you. And he said, no. And he kept walking, at which point the clerk, who was a younger, stronger, athletic black guy, tackled him. And then the clerk's boss came running out and tackled him. Now, keep in mind, if the police get involved in any way, this is done. Mm-hmm. The cover's blown, right? They're, they're, they're going to be traced real quick. So he, they had tackled him outside the store. They've got him pinned down. They start to fe- he said he felt the handcuff from uh, the shop owner go over one wrist when automatic gunfire just erupts out of nowhere, just like full auto from the middle of the road. And both the clerk and the owner run back into the store for cover. And he looks up and Patty is hanging out the window of their VW bug unloading on these two dudes. She didn't hit either of them, to the best of my knowledge, but she just saved this dude's butt. And then he runs back to the car. They get in. They start taking off. The clerk comes out and shoots at the car a couple times. But this does not seem to me the act of somebody who's being forced against their will to do something. And it gets more interesting. So Tanya has saved him at this point. And we're going to jump forward just a little bit. It is now May of 1974. So on May 17th, 1974, there's a shootout. So there was a minor hitch with the... uh, the sporting goods store robbery. One of the people involved dropped her pistol and it was traced back to the SLA through a rather complex series of events. They were able to trace them to a safe house. Now, remember they were split up at this point. They were, they were essentially taking turns splitting into different groups and they knew they'd been made by the LAPD, but they didn't know exactly to what extent. And that was until the LAPD showed up on the front porch of the house they owned, and it turned into a full-blown shootout. And the LAPD, by the way, was completely outgunned. These guys had 
the SLA had fully automatic weapons. They had military style weapons. They had shotguns. They had sniper rifles. They had everything they needed to essentially hold off the LAPD. And it got real, real quick. Now, the LAPD being the LAPD claims that they did not fire the first shot. But that's a little bit like me claiming that I've showered in the last four days during quarantine. It's just abjectly not true. And we all know it. So the... The the reality of the situation is they fired tear gas canisters, which, and this is a little spooky, they say ignited the fire inside the house. There's this other place called Waco, Texas, where the government said the same thing. But anyway, um, plug, 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 plug. <laughs> so in in a very, very brief period of time, the entire building goes up. Um, it's totally on fire. And the whole time they're still shooting. They're not leaving the house. One person gave up. Everybody else was still shooting. When they found the charred corpses, they had crawled underneath the house and kept shooting while on fire. Oh, my God. This sounds very, very, very much like Waco. Yeah, we, we just went way... We went from TBS to HBO real quick there. But yeah. anyway, um, so they found six corpses charred to the point where dental records had to be used to ID them, but they mm. went out shooting at the LAPD. And the well, reason they had a mission, they is, wanted to accomplish it. But what was the mission? Like, exactly. Like, what, 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 what were they trying to accomplish? Like, yeah, I don't know. Tanya's oh, no longer a hostage. No one could find their black book because it burned up in the fire. So, so, so this whole thing is secrets. an episode of National <laughs> Treasure. So they had to go find the book. What, what are we doing here anyway? So, in this, in this shootout, um, Donald DeFreeze, Willie Wolf, and four other members of the original group are dead. So the two founders and the original guy in charge. And this is where we see a huge turning point in the SLA. Now, there's not really an official stance here, but it is my opinion that Tanya is essentially the de facto leader at this point. That from here on out, what what happens is really more driven by her. But on the upside, they seem to finally gain a, you know, reason to do the things they're doing. And that is that they're now going to go kill police officers because that's what you do when your friends die Mm -hmm. because they shot at police officers. Right. I mean, it makes sense to me. So point. I mean, essentially the the dots are connected. Yeah, it just makes perfect sense. (laughs) Point A to point seven. Um, So essentially they're now out of money. A bunch of their guns are destroyed, and it's Patty and a couple of her confidants left. I think there's four of them at this point. Well, they need money. And the way you make money is by stealing money when you're a terrorist agency. Now, let me remind you of something. This is supposed to be the army of the people. Do you remember me mentioning that at the beginning? Yeah. How has any of this served the people, really? Like, you you haven't made a point necessarily you haven't done anything except kill cops which i think we're all morally against like murder in and of itself is morally wrong right so how are you the army of the people how do you speak for the people when you've done nothing for them and it's only going to get worse so the army of the people picks this bank called the crocker bank to take down and through a combination of overly hubrist actions and an underwhelming amount of planning they show up at the sorry real uh, quick each time they rob a bank does it say how much money they were able to get away with i couldn't find it i tried um but essentially they they show up at the bank early so before it opens and there's these two women there um waiting to get into the bank 
So one of the gunmen holds the door open for her as the bank opens and they go in and then they immediately pull their guns out and take the bank down. And in their zeal to uh, be bank robbers, I guess you could say, an overly nervous gunwoman named Emily shot one of the two people in the bank with them with a shotgun at close range, like almost right off the bat. So now they've committed a murder of an innocent victim with no affiliation to anything that they're against. And the worst part is she was a church bursar there to count the bills for the church to make sure that the money being put into the count was correct. Oh, my gosh. So it's like, could you pick a worse person to shoot? She's a mom of four that's a church bursar that isn't there with any lethal threat, like right off the bat. So that is just that is the worst possible thing that could have happened. I thought they were for the people, though. Wouldn't she be exactly. the concern of the people and they're hurting her? Well, and I think that's the big question mark for me. So Patty was one of the getaway drivers here. And it's like, who do you serve? And what is your goal here? And why would you have let the person who you know is not well-trained in this go in and do this operation? It's just all kind of spiraling. And that's even before August 7th when the bombing started. So in August 7th, 1975, Tanya herself places a bomb under a cop car at a police station and it's a dud, but when they found it, they described it as the largest pipe bomb they had ever seen. Oh, no. It would have destroyed the vehicle. It would have killed probably, I think the, the description said 12 people within the radius would have died. And that's not the first one. August 20th, they set up strategic bomb placements. That's where you essentially put a bomb in one location to do minor damage, then have a secondary explosion set up in a choke point to kill people on their way to come check on the damage. Right. Uh, ISIS uses it a lot. Um so that was at the Marin courthouse. They set up a bomb underneath the cop car and one by the door. The bomb went off underneath the cop car second, though, so luckily nobody was hurt. So basically, they targeted the cops and legal buildings, essentially. Cops with basically the were the only target. Okay. That, was, that was essentially it. But you got to remember, bombs don't have brains. They, they hit whatever's around them. Right. But and I mean, because like, you said it was yeah, at the, it, um, the courthouse building. The Marin County courthouse, yeah. Yeah. So they were targeting legal figures, but specifically the fact that the bomb was under, under a cop, cop car, car as a statement. Yeah. And then on August 22nd, 1975, they found even larger pipe bombs set to blow up when the uh, police officer entered his vehicle um, underneath five squad cars in L.A. Um, so they were out to just kill cops. At this point, they're no better than a gang. They're, they're, they're organized crime. Mm-hmm. They're not helping the people. And I honestly think with the death of Donald DeFreeze, that gang died. That group and its ideals died. They became a survival cult based on avoiding being captured by the police, which eventually did happen. Um, I did want to mention one thing, though. Of all those bombs, not a one had any effect on any person. Good. Um, Nobody was hurt by the bombs, either through... The, the one with the cop cars was super trippy for me because I, I was reading up on how they made them. So essentially the trigger device was a magnet that was between um, two cl- between a clothespin, which would close a circuit. So essentially when you pulled up on it, it would let the clothespin shut and set off a bomb. It's a pretty common technique. Um, and they had magnetized it to the bottom of the police car so that they knew that the cop was in the car and backing up or driving forward when the bomb went off to maximize damage. It just so happened that the police officer in question pulled out at just the right angle to make the clothespin pop the wrong way so that it would not create a circuit. And that's why the bomb didn't go off. And that's why he was able to alert the other officers in the area that there was a potential bomb threat. And that's how they found the other bombs. Oh, my gosh. The bombs were loaded with nails, shrapnel, 
screws, busted metal. Whatever can been, cause damage essentially is shoved it, into it. It would have been really, really bad had they gone off, but not a one caused any human life damage, which That's is good. insane when you think about the size of the pipe bombs. The but quantity. the squirrels on the side of the road got them. And on the upside, the SLA had dinner that night. So, um, you said I did no human life was they, damaged, so that's why I had to make a joke. I'm sorry, it was no didn't fall very well. The filming of this episode. <laughs> uh, so, um, they did eventually get sloppy. I think one of the members got busted by a cop in a laundromat. Good. I mean, they got tired. That's what happens. And they were tracked to their main safe house where all remaining members were arrested. Um, they found marked bills from the Crocker Bank, which sealed the deal because that was a murder that had happened at the Crocker Bank alongside bank robbery charges. Um, the following is verbatim from uh, Wikipedia, but I want to know. So there, we now know that Patty's been captured and some of her cohorts. If you were to guess what she pleaded, what were you? What would you guess? Insanity. Okay, you're gonna guess insanity, Mike. What are you guessing? I'm going to agree with Kyle. Insanity. Mike says insanity as well. She did attempt to plead insanity at one point, but more importantly, she attempted to plead at least uh, in an off-the-record recording that she did none of it of her own free will. So that she, so that they controlled her. Yep, that they told her to with go with one of the unforgivable curses from Harry Potter. <laughs> Exactly, you know, which is why which is why she was armed to the teeth in a bank one time and went and put a bomb under a cop car one time. All things that were not her idea, you know, totally. So she eventually on March 20th, 1976, was convicted. And keep in mind, all of the things she's done. She's convicted of bank robbery and us- using the firearm in the commission of a felony. Oh my gosh. That's a maximum sentence of 35 years. 35 years is a long time, but yeah. she implicitly the- or explicitly led to the murder of a woman, robbed banks, mm-hmm. diff- you know, stole money, uh, all these things that would get anybody who wasn't the daughter of a wealthy man a lot more prison time. Yes, absolutely. And I was going to say, but that's the maximum time because that was her intent, but it didn't actually hurt anybody. That time wouldn't she wouldn't max out. She had the potential for a pending reduction of her final sentence, but the judge declined to specify what that was. And then he died before the trial was over. (laughs) So then the next judge takes over and he determined her sentence. So he gave her, this makes my skin crawl, seven years. Seven years? That was seven years. You get more time for that for taking pictures inside of Area 51. Seven years, and his exact comment was, rebellious young people who for whatever for whatever reason become revolutionaries and voluntarily commit criminal acts will be punished. Oh, you got him, Judge William Horsley Oreck Jr. Oh my gosh. Great work, guys. American legal system works. But anyway, <gasps> that's Patty Hearst. So irritating. <laughs> so, let, just to recap, we still don't know what the SLA was thinking what their goal was, and Patty Hearst got off with seven years. Let me go back for a moment, gents. Let me go back. Robbed a bank. Robbed another bank. Shot at people in front of a convenience store. 
put bombs underneath police cars and orchestrated more. Bombed a courthouse. Was involved in the murder of a church purser in another bank robbery. Seven years. Seven years. It's it's ridiculous to me, though, that that many crimes lined up while acting as a domestic terrorist inside of a declared enemy of the United States gets you seven years. That's in. Oh, my gosh. Now, she did have kind of a crappy time in prison. She had a lung deflate. But like she's been on. She went on Leno. She went on. Not Leno. What am I saying? She went on Larry King and got interviewed. And she claims the whole time. Oh, it was just horrible. And I was just brainwashed into this whole thing. And and it wasn't me. And. And I can't believe that I did all those things. And it's just like bullshit. So I know. You brainwashed for two years while you blew blew up cop cars and stole mm-hmm. money. So I know. So she was with them for two years. No, she was with them all the way through 74 and then halfway through 75. Year and a half. So year and a half. Um, <laughs> I forgot what my point was. You can scratch that. <laughs> but um, I think for me, like what I take away from this is. If we're going to boil all this down to what it means today, she 100% was doing this of her own free will. Yes. This was her choice. Yes. They just happened to kidnap somebody who was ready to do this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think she liked the adventure of it. I also think that the SLA, as misguided as it was in its initial murder, um, had some direction to an extent. But I think with the death of Donald DeFreeze, it was all gone and it became her personal vendetta against Mm -hmm. the police. And I think that all of that is important because it essentially comes back to the fact that even after all of that, she only got seven years in prison. And in reality, it's a slap in the face to the group that she worked with because you got to bet her rich dad paid for that. Yeah, so he did. So what did they do? In the, in the long run, they made a big circle. They came back to the rich being rich and getting away with whatever they want. So the story and I guess the moral of the story for Patty, um, Patty Hearst is nothing. Yeah. She changed well, nothing and solved nothing. Yeah, but what bothers me about this, and I used this casually earlier, but typically I hate it when people say brainwash because brainwashing is a real thing, and I think that a lot of people use it very casually. I don't think she was brainwashed. It definitely was Stockholm Syndrome. I yep. don't know where Stockholm Syndrome got its name, but it clearly wasn't from her. I It was from something that happened in Stockholm, one would guess. I figured but- that. <laughs> I, I believe it was from an episode of The Muppets when the Swedish chef kidnapped Kermit and made him okay. learn about the uh, SLA, and I, it was a big thing. I don't know. <laughs> You've learned the Swedish chef's manifesto. But, um, but you know what wow, I mean? The like, chef the, as a terrorist is a terrifying idea. Yeah, but, but you know what I mean? Like, brainwashing is a legitimate thing. Like, it's definitely something that happens, and we should be cautious about using it as frequently as we do. There's a big difference between brainwashing, groupthink, and cult mentalities. Right. And it, they use the word brainwash a lot in her trial, and I think I agree with Kyle. It's, it was not brainwashing. It was groupthink. It was a mob mentality, and she definitely took it to the next level. But she was also now, 19 years old when she was kidnapped. She's very, her personality and everything that she was learning was very moldable. That's why everyone's like, oh, I need to go to college to experience and learn, my, learn about myself. To go because into a lot right of debt will never pay off. Yeah, but it's because they're in that age group right then where they're super moldable and they're learning about themselves. So her jump being kidnapped at that time, they were able to mold her. Not to mention, I don't you think also it, have to realize that the average college student's going to college because his friends are going to college. So it's right. evidence of groupthink. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there is a rather interesting footnote here. So apparently 
back in the seventies, you know, you know how like celebrities like to get in on everything for some mm-hmm. reason these days, and we mm-hmm. care for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I don't. first off, we shouldn't. We should really stop giving a. The Kardashians is a dumb show and it's bad. <laughs> I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll make a T-shirt of it. I agree. But anyway, but there are some really funny episodes. <laughs> Kyle, you're a part of the group thing. Um, I, I shouldn't say episodes because I never have watched a full episode. But there's just be like clips that I just laugh hysterically. I like when they get into fights and they're like physically fighting each other. I just can't help but laugh. I just I want I want their airplane to go down over a field of glass. But anyway. Um, <laughs> So it apparently wasn't just unique to our time to have people that knew nothing about it weigh in on it just because they were famous. John Wayne, um, (laughs) apparently after Jonestown, said that if uh, Jim Jones had brainwashed 900 individuals into mass suicide, um, he doesn't understand how we can't accept that the Symbionese Liberation Army couldn't have brainwashed a kidnapped teenage girl. Right. So basically, he's saying Jim Jones brainwashed 900 people why couldn't the symbionese liberation army do the same because it's totally different things first off but this is where it gets real spooky you see plug 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 kyle and i are going to be talking about jonestown sometime soon and when we talk about it we'll bring up a certain person named leo ryan leo ryan was a senator he's actually a representative if we're going to be accurate here but either way Leo Ryan was collecting signatures on a petition that would have given Patty Hearst's release a much shorter window when he was murdered while visiting Jonestown in Guyana. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. And that is where we end the episode today. You guys have been dears for sitting all the way through it. Like, subscribe, add yourself to the channel, click the little ring the bell icon. Wait, wrong thing. We're doing this virtually, so I can understand why you would think to do that. <laughs> I just decided to f with our entire audience. You just tried to click in middle in the middle of the air. They're didn't like, you? how do I subscribe yeah. and follow? What happened again? <laughs> Wait, who did what now? But once again, think for yourselves, people. Mm-hmm. If I say sheeple, I'll kill myself. So just just know I'll never do that. We're also not about to pitch you on our line of <laughs> subpar supplemental products that we use to keep the place afloat. <laughs> oh But anyway, think about what we've talked about today. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Was Patty Hearst brainwashed or was she working on her own free will? Was she a part of groupthink or was she working on her own free will? Are you right or was she working on her own free will? The questions (laughs) only you can answer. So we'd love to hear from you. You have our information at the end of the episode. I've been Zane. And I'm Kyle. And this has been Pair of Normal Guys. And remember, don't fall in love with a beast. And don't shoot Flanders wife during a bank robbery. To keep up to date on what's happening on the podcast, follow us on Instagram at Guys Pair of Normal. Also, if you have any stories you want to share with us, email us at pnormalguys at gmail.com.